0: I'm gonna... Can I please have your attention, Daniel you Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning of the David French Podcast last week, which in my part of the timeline we just recorded. Um, I'm very much under the weather, which bums me out because um, I was really looking forward to this conversation, but uh, this is one of the rare times where I actually took notes um, to do this, so I think I'll be okay. Uh, Our guest today is uh, Francis Fukuyama. Uh, He um, is quite arguably one of the most important social scientists, political scientists, political theorists um, around today, certainly in the English language. And he doesn't know this, but I actually owe him a debt of gratitude because, on a job interview at the American Enterprise Institute thirty years ago, Ben Wattenberg asked me to explain what the End of History and the Last Man was about. <laughs> and apparently, my answer was sufficiently satisfactory that he's like, "All right, let's give this kid the the, the internship." So, um, I'm I'm grateful for that. It was the most I've gotten out of a of a book professionally, and I think in my <laughs> lifetime for that reason alone. So, uh, Professor Fukuyama, uh, welcome to the Reddit. Thanks very much for having me, Jonah. I should
1: uh, I should demand payment for that service that I provided.
0: I I maybe I, should, I well I've tried to repay the service over the last couple of decades by defending the book as misunderstood, which is I think something that you um um have probably dealt with a good deal. Indeed, <laughs> um, indeed. It must be very annoying how many people must come up to you and say, "Hey, is is, is history coming back?" you know or whatever. Um So uh, one of the things I like to ask authors of new books, because the question I like to get when I'm on a book tour that isn't asked enough, um, what's your book about? And the book is Liberalism and Its Discontents by Francis Fukuyama. Um, What's the book about? Why would you write it? Well,
1: so uh, the doctrine liberalism, which I define in a a relatively broad sense, uh, has been under attack uh, from both the right and the left in recent years. And I think for a lot of, especially for a lot of Gen Z younger people, uh, it seems like, you know, their fathers or grandfathers or grandmothers uh, uh, set of ideas that's now outmoded and needs to be replaced by something new. And I think that that is actually dangerous because we really depend on having uh, liberal principles uh, underlying the kind of society we want to live in. And so I... Thought that instead of trying to make excuses for it, I would just do a full-throated defense of liberalism. Uh, you know, uh, admitting that uh, it's evolved in certain ways that have created uh, a lot of pushback on the uh, for people, but uh, you know, just to explain why what liberalism is and and why it's uh, good for us.
0: Okay, so we should do a little more level sledding before I. I... Come at you like an enraged spider monkey on some of this. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but we should do a little more level setting. What what is a good working definition of, of liberalism and neoliberalism?
1: So there are several uh, uses of liberalism that are not the ones I'm using. So I'm not using liberal in the American sense of people, you know, in the Democratic Party that are progressive or left of center. Uh, there's a European sense of liberalism, which means a center-right party that's very committed to free markets and deregulation, and that's also not the sense I'm using it in. Uh, Liberalism, for me, is a doctrine that really got its start way back in the middle of the 17th century that essentially asserts that um, uh, people should be treated as equal individuals, they've got uh, equal dignity, and that that Dignity needs to be protected by a rule of law, by a constitutional order that uh, limits the power of governments uh, over those individuals. Uh, It's very closely connected historically with a certain cognitive mode, which is that of modern natural science that says that basically there's a real world outside our uh, subjective consciousness and that we can... uh, we can understand that world through the scientific method and then manipulate it. Uh, and uh, it's universalist. Uh, it maintains that these human individuals uh, have this basic uh, core of dignity and that that's not determined by their social class, by their ethnicity, by their race, by their gender, by other um, you know cultural constructs, but uh, kind of underlies the, um, uh, the rights uh, that they are uh that need to be protected by by governments that's a rather long winded definition no but, it's it's good know. i mean I mean
0: as you note in the book i mean I don't think you have the quote from from c v wedgwood, which is always one of my favorite quotes about how liberalism in part comes out of the sort of the the wars of religion, which you document at length um when people realized as wedgwood put it the essential futility of putting the beliefs of the mind to the judgment of the sword, right? It's a way for strangers to get along with each other in a productive and, and, and non-oppressive way.
1: That's exactly right. So I think that, um, liberalism got its start, you know, after the 150 years experience in Europe of fighting over whether you're Protestant or Catholic or, you know, some other sect. And I think the early liberals uh, realized that societies were going to be religiously diverse, and you needed a way to get people to live uh, peacefully with one another, despite those differences over, you know, their conception of the final ends of man. And so liberalism tries to lower the temperature of politics, It, it lowers the sights of politics to say, let's protect life itself, rather than some particular religion's view of the good life. And That also then gets applied to various types of nationalism that would uh, try to define societies in terms of ethnicity or race or a certain very strong uh, cultural uh, tradition and then exclude other people. So that uh, was really the fundamental origins of liberalism. It's governing over diversity.
0: And so uh, neoliberalism is... Basically, and you're telling the Chicago school size of uh, the Chicago school side of of not not I mean, there, there are many rooms in the mansion of libertarianism, but it's the Milton Friedman style that you think that's is right. That's working different definition of neoliberalism. So
1: historically, liberalism has always been associated with the market economy because among the freedoms uh, individual freedoms that liberalism protects is the freedom to own property to transact, to engage in a market uh, economy. And that is why liberalism, I think from the start was very much associated with economic growth and the modernization that took place in Europe and then in North America and other places that adopted liberal economic policies. But neoliberalism uh, as it's come to be used, I think has to do with a certain extreme interpretation of those basic uh, economic principles that is associated with Friedman and you know George Stigler and Gary Becker and a lot of Nobel prize winning economists you know at the University of Chicago that I think carried it to an extreme where markets were really seen as a solution for many human social problems and the state was very much denigrated as uh, as the enemy of growth or an obstacle to growth because it would overregulate and uh, interfere with people's uh you know free economic activity, and I think that interpretation led to a lot of problems because uh, it created a lot of among other things a lot of inequality in uh you know in our contemporary globalized society
0: um and just the last terminological um spelunking um you don't have i mean i don't remember I, I really liked the chapter on um Sort of Rawlsian liberalism, the uh, the liberalism of self-actualization, which you sort of at least has echoes of of Rousseau, um, and is uh, sort of sort of defines where you think liberalism went wrong on the left. you think liberalism went wrong on the right because of the the knee-jerk anti-state stuff and knee-jerk, you know, uh, libertarian economic stuff? And on the left, you think it's more about Um, the elevation of the self is the highest form of authority. Is that a fair way to put it? No, that's, uh, yeah, that's
1: right. So the, um, you know, the core of the moral argument for liberalism is that it protects human autonomy. Uh, That is our basic ability to make choices about, you know, what we're going to do with our lives, who we're going to marry, where we're going to live uh, and the like. And it doesn't put constraints on that. But as uh, time went on, the autonomy was seen as a, you know, a, a good thing in itself, irrespective of what was, uh, what was chosen. And with John Rawls, you see this carried to, I think, an extreme that's very comparable to the extreme that Milton Friedman carried neoliberalism in economics. That is to say that it wasn't important what you cho- chose, it was just important to protect choice itself. Uh, and that is problematic because you can't actually have a society if everybody gets to make up the rules, you know, the uh, the way that moral choice was understood in religious traditions like that of Protestantism was that, you know, God gave you the right to choose, but you couldn't just decide, you know, what to choose. It was God's law that you either followed or did not. Uh, but, you know, under the impact, under the influence of, of I think, a more extreme form of uh, understanding of autonomy, it, it came to be that you can choose the moral framework itself. Um, you know, this, this was something that Justice Kennedy uh, uh, articulated in, in, you know, the famous uh, 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 Casey versus Planned Parenthood, you know, that freedom is the ability to make up your own, you know, moral frameworks and worlds and so forth. And you can't really have a society uh, on the basis on that kind of a basis where everybody gets to choose the moral
0: framework. So in my uh, most recent book, a couple of years ago, um, I think I'm making a very similar point though. I had a different framework. I, I argue that essentially romanticism never died and that the romantic spirit that you see in Rousseau, this idea that the, the, the self is the highest form of personal, Uh, highest form of legitimacy that the, that going with your gut, going with your instincts is superior to following reason and arguments and debate. Um, You know, and one of the points I always try to make to people is like uh, this is the S the very, this idea taken to this sort of Rawlsian extreme. um, Although I would normally say Rousseauian extreme is the very essence of bad parenting because (laughs) good parenting is being a hypocrite to a certain extent and saying, These are lessons that I learned from my mistakes in life, and I am going to give my child the benefit of those lessons. And so it's a lot more do as I say, not as I do. And, you know, I always make, I always joke, you know, if I've never heard a good parent say, oh, you have to be true to yourself. You have to go with your instincts. You have to go with your gut. So I wouldn't do it, but you be you and you go run with those scissors right? I mean, or yeah, <laughs> you eat those lead paint chips, right? Cause you have to be yeah. true to yourself. And, um, and that's one of the reasons why I kind of have a, a lot of sympathy with the, the Friedrich Hayek argument about the macrocosm and the microcosm and uh, at the, at the microcosm level of faith, family, friends, community, and, and, and all that, there are different rules, um, than at the macrocosm level where it's the extended order of contracts and, you know, it's, it's, it's Gemeinschaft versus Gesellschaft. And, and so I guess, part of my question for you is, um, you know, it's very interesting reading the book. I started underlining it and noting it in the margins every time you did this, where you'll say it's a, there's a lot of Goldilocks argumentation. And I'm not, this is not a criticism, but you'll say there's a lot of merit to what Rawls was doing, but it went too far. There was, there was a good point to what Bork was doing, but it went too far. There's a good point to what Milton Friedman was arguing, but it went too far. And you can go down like on, on issue after issue. And I guess the question is is how do you what's the what's the formula or the algorithm or the heuristic to figure out how to have that golden mean between these valid ideas that but have taken to their extremes by, you know, blow up on us. Is there, is, is there a formula other than sort of a, and that's calling you a Straussian, but sort of a Straussian <laughs> emphasis on just simply statesmanship, you know, and, and, and prudence and that kind of thing.
1: Yeah. There's a couple of answers to that. Um, one just has to do with a kind of personal, uh, behavioral orientation, which I called for in the final, uh, couple of paragraphs of the book, which is to revive the Greek virtue of moderation. You know, that if X is a good thing, it doesn't necessarily mean that 10 times X or a hundred times X is going to be 10 or a hundred times better. Sometimes it's actually going to be, uh, worse. And, you know, a lot of the modern understanding of the self doesn't accept that. So you think of the number of graduation speeches in which the, um, speaker, Uh, exhorted the students to go out and follow your passions. Uh, I remember uh, my my youngest son uh, graduated from a Northern Virginia high school, and because uh, Antonin Scalia's son was a classmate, uh, Scalia uh, gave the graduation speech, which was actually one of the best graduation speeches I've heard, and he said, well, you know, most speakers will say, go follow your passions, Well, Hitler followed his passions and look at where, you know, look where it led us. Uh, And so I think that, you know, that that inclination to understand that uh, what's inside yourself may not always be good and that authenticity in that sense is not necessarily uh, a virtue is, you know, something that people uh, need to keep in mind. I would say that, you know, what's too far? uh, There's not a either a philosophical or even a kind of pragmatic rule of reason that would allow you to determine that you kind of have to look at outcomes uh, so you know you like free markets but at a certain point they produce social consequences that are you know really not sustainable uh, too much inequality too much resentment that you know the people that have done well under that system that then leads to a social revolution uh, and at that point you know you need to pull back and um, say, well, maybe that underlying principle shouldn't be pushed that far beyond, uh, you know, beyond that moral disposition towards moderation and, you know, judging things by outcomes. I'm, I'm not sure that I can come up with a, uh, you know, any kind of
0: pragmatic universal rule that will tell you when you've gone too far. But I mean, you mentioned briefly federalism, but it always seems to me like I've been, either in the audience or on the panel for a really absurdly large number of debates between conservatives and libertarians and social conservatives and economic conservatives and all these kinds of things. And at almost every single one, some nerdy intern or research assistant or whatever will stand up and say during the Q and a, wouldn't the solution to this be going back to, um, the, the federalist structure of devolving power down to the most local level possible because that way, and I can do the math on this. Federalism allows the most people to live the way they want to live because local majorities can be national minorities, but they get to have some stickiness to what their institutions are. Um, and it seems to me that part of the problem with all of the liberal thinkers that I read in your book, um, It's very much the vision from 30,000 feet of the entire nation state. And it it doesn't explicitly, you know, Rawls isn't explicitly a one size fits all guy, although he kind of is with the veil of ignorance stuff. And, um, and it just seems to me that that federal solution, which is federal solution, which in many ways was the most important solution coming out of the wars of religion has really just sort of fallen by the wayside in, in the U S and in Europe. Yeah, so um, I think that federalism is
1: misunderstood because there are, you know, many ways in which individual liberty and individual rights can be suppressed uh, or, or overturned. So one is that you got a powerful central government, you got a dictator that that uh, uh, oppresses people, but you know, people can be oppressed by local dictators, and in fact. Uh, you know, one of the features of the way liberal thought developed in England uh, was the idea that the king actually had a role in restraining the barons. Uh, And, you know, actually what the, um, uh, you know, what a lot of English law did was actually apply law to these powerful uh, lesser powers. And in that role, the king was really important. The common law was actually the law of the king's court and applying that to the barons meant that they couldn't do whatever they wanted to their vassals. In American history, you see exactly the same uh, problem, because who is it that was responsible for the suppression of the rights of African Americans, both before and after the Civil War? It wasn't the national government. It was state governments, where you had democratic majorities in the South that voted to, you know, in the first instance, uphold slavery. Uh, and then in the second instance, to uphold segregation and Jim Crow. And under those circumstances, it actually, the the guarantor of liberty wasn't these devolved units within the federal system. It was the national government. Uh, You know, there are other cases where it's the national government that has to crack down on corruption. You know, so northeastern Brazil has been famous as a bastion of, you know, bad government and corruption and backwardness. And so sometimes you got to get the federal authorities to to intervene. So, you know, in the end, I think that what you want is you you can't uh, identify uh, ex-ante who's going to be the oppressor of people's rights, whether it's going to be a local elite or whether it's going to be the national government. Uh, And therefore, you know, what you want is a system that balances the two so that neither one can really do their worst. Uh, They're going to meet, uh, you know, constraints and resistance. Uh, and I think you've got cases where central government sometimes does that and cases where local government uh, does that. And, you know, there isn't a perfect institutional solution to that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I hear what you're saying and I, I get that a lot when I'll talk about the importance of federalism to college students and they'll say, well, what about, you know, all states' rights means is Jim Crow or slavery? And I'm like, well, no, we fought a war over that. We met the constitution a bunch of times. Like that's sort of off the table now. And I am perfectly fine with incorporating the 14th and 15th and all that into to state, um, constitutions. But at the same time, like why can't Oregon make its own decisions about, you know, pasteurized cheese? Why can't it? I mean, this is part of your point, at least as I understood it about, um, Robert Bork who was a friend of mine was that the the standard of consumer welfare over all else leaves no opportunity to in antitrust law to protect local communities from big national players and chains and I'm very sympathetic to that. I've always sort of thought I may disagree with it on economic grounds but if some Vermont village wants to keep Costco out, okay, you know, that's fine by me. But um having it just seems to me that that's an impo- it's a really important point about this if it's If it's not one dial on the control not, control panel of how to run a government but a whole bunch of dials, the federalism thing um, which I think the right and the left talk about very badly and very selectively and very pretextually um, just needs to be a, a bigger part of, of the argument well I, I so think, you know. no sure, so I think that um,
1: you need a you do need a rule as to the sphere of autonomy that local governments uh, are permitted to have. And I think, you know, this came out in the Lincoln-Douglas debates because Douglas was arguing that the states ought to be able to vote slavery up or down because democracy was the important principle. And Lincoln said, no, that's not right because there's a prior higher principle which is embodied in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal. And so, you um, you know, a state voting to legalize uh, segregation is not comparable to the state voting to change the standards on pasteurizing its milk. Right? Uh, that there are some issues that really get to fundamental uh, moral values, and in those cases, uh, that's not up to simply local uh, local choice. But I agree that there's a vast uh, area of policy where uh, you know, communities ought to be able to make different kinds of trade-offs between different social values. And, you know, this idea that we should have a kind of complete uniform, you know, this this came up during COVID with public health. Um, You know, clearly things like masking uh, uh, would depend on whether you're living in a crowded urban environment like New York or San Francisco, or, you know, whether you're Wyoming or, you know, places that are you know, much more rural and where you don't get people together. And so, you know, there probably ought to be some slack in the way that um, authorities are able to tailor uh, policy recommendations to their local,
0: their local conditions. So I have no problem with that at all. So I, I got to ask you this question and it's a little far afield, but so I really loved the, the, the guided tour through the history of liberalism. You know, it, it very much reminds me, I had an English teacher in high school who explained that the brilliant thing about old man in the sea by Ernest Hemingway is that the book was essentially written much longer. And I'm not sure if this is actually true or just figuratively true or whatever, but the book was written much longer than Hemingway goes in and basically carves off just the mountaintops that make it out of the water. And every, there's all this deep stuff that's implied and the ability to sort of walk through Kant and, um, and Rousseau and Rawls and all of that in a way that I think the, a moderately adequate reader can understand was really really impressive, but I asked this of a lot of people. How much? I mean, uh, again, the, the the walkthrough on the theory and the history of the theory was very useful. Um, how much of the theory is a lagging indicator versus a leading indicator? I mean, there's an enormous amount of stuff I learned in your Origins of Political Order book about how you know a lot of institutions rise up and then get refined over time um and over time get reified or a- abstracted um you know the example i often use is that the 4th amendment basically starts in a weird english custom in the 7th century about not being you know able to go into someone's house without permission you know that kind of thing how much of the how much of our understanding of these things is actually driven by these theorists and how much are these theorists simply reflecting the zeitgeist as we Move forward in time. Well, I want a definitive answer. (laughs) You 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 can't answer that, uh, you know.
1: Generally, I mean, it it really depends because I think that sometimes the ideas come first, and sometimes the reality comes first. And so, um, you know, there are a lot of classic cases of this. You know, was the Protestant Reformation just the product of the social conditions uh, in Germany in Luther's time? or did Luther's articulation of this set of ideas really change the way people behaved? And that's a really complicated question, but I actually, maybe this is just the vanity of somebody that, uh, you know, has been an intellectual his whole life, but I actually do think that ideas are uh, independently important and powerful and um, you know, they have real world consequences. So there's another uh, example of that in, in my book, which has to do with uh, the question, why are people progressives in the United States so preoccupied with language, right? Because in college campuses today, you'll have people say that, you know, simply hearing certain words spoken constitutes violence. It leads to traumatic stress. Uh, uh, It's the equivalent of, you know, a physical attack. Why would anyone think something like this? And there, I think you actually can trace um, uh, a certain set of ideas, which I try to do that, you know, it starts with this Swiss linguist, Ferdinand de Saussure, that began arguing that language is simply uh, an imposition by subjective consciousnesses on reality. It doesn't actually reflect uh, reality, which then gets transformed in postmodernist thought to, uh, you know, a a broad um, elevation of subjectivity uh, through language as a way that the world is shaped. And this all comes to a head with Michel Foucault, who then begins to argue that uh, actually the whole structure of the the cognitive structure of modern science is in a way this vast conspiracy by certain elites to structure the way that people behave. So that instead of just killing people or putting them in jail the way people did in, in earlier times, Uh, we are manipulated by elites by the way that they use language and so they use the supposedly neutral language of science of modern science to get people to behave basically and people are not conscious of this uh, unless they're alerted to this fact by you know having read Foucault and you know that whole strand of postmodernist thought and I think that leads directly to the kind of um, political correctness that we see around us that there's just extraordinary sensitivity to, you know, to words that really seems not correlated with the actual importance of, of those words. And yet that becomes a lot of the agenda of, you know, of, of progressives. And I really do think you have to locate that within a certain intellectual tradition you know, that, that came out of that line of postmodernist uh, thought. So that's just an example, but there, there are others. You know, I, I don't think the neoliberal revolution could have been nearly as extensive as it was if you didn't have all these high-powered economists, uh, you know, promoting it with empirical studies and, you know, winning Nobel Prizes for certain, you know, like the, um, uh, you know, Eugene Fama's, you know, theory of markets, that markets are always right in terms of, you know, taking in information and setting prices. I mean, it doesn't actually correspond to anyone's actual uh, experience with markets, but, you know, you had a, a very powerful economist saying that. And therefore, you know, a lot of people ended up believing it. So I, I really do think that ideas do shape reality, even as they reflect reality.
0: Yeah. I, again, I'm, I'm not all one or all the other on, on this question, but I do think that the the sort of words hurt stuff is a good example of what I'm talking about. Um, insofar as, and I read a lot of Foucault in college because I went to an all women's college. I read more My freshman year was the first year they admitted men. I read probably more Foucault than I did Federalist Papers. And, um, but there's been political correctness for want of a, you know, depending on how you define it, 50 years, 70 years, you know, I mean, it depends what you're in lots of universities. There's certainly been radicalism in a lot of, in a lot of universities. Um, and it seems to me that I'm very much persuaded by Jonathan Haidt on this is that the, it's, it's it's much more marbled or chicken and the egg on this because this is the first generation of young people who are raised in a certain way to be sort of this fragility thesis, where the worst thing you can do is hurt someone's feelings. The worst thing you can do is be a bully and I'm not pro bully, but you get these kids who are raised on a wholesale level, particularly among elite kids to be, um, you know, uh, that they always have to go to a third party intercessor to adjudicate interpersonal conflicts because they don't know how to do it. They think that being criticized equates to being yelled at. And um and again I'm speaking in broad generalizations. So it just seems to me that like this has been the generation the mass movement of students that the Foucaultians and others had been waiting for, right? And so it's sort of a it's a pincer movement of uh these ideas give you permission structure to take this stuff to a crazy degree because these kids are actually into it in a way that they weren't when I went to college and probably when you went to college.
1: Yeah, no, that's certainly, uh, I think that's certainly true. So it's just like, uh, you know, the Protestant Reformation that Luther's ideas wouldn't have spread throughout Germany if there hadn't been, you know, all of this unhappiness with the church and with the, you know, the, the, the political structures that existed at the time. But you know, you, you, you require the intellectual to actually formulate things in a particular way that then, you know, takes off like wildfire. I mean, you know, I, I, I keep thinking this about Karl Marx, right, that socialist ideas, the redistri- radical redistribution of, of property from rich to poor has been around for centuries. Why does it take this particular form of communism Uh, following on Marx's writings, well, you know, the the dry tinder was there, but the spark, you know, really required somebody that claimed, well, this is not just uh, my opinion, this is a scientific understanding of history, this is the first time that human beings have actually scientifically understood, you know, the fact that history is all class struggle, and without that, you know, intellectual structure, that very complex intellectual structure, I just don't think you would have had the 20th century looking the way it, it it did with the rise of communism
0: yeah i think that's a good that's a good example of the other side of that argument all right so get get out of the clouds um you are of mind that today's right broadly defined and or specifically the sort of populist trumpian part which i'm not part of um Uh, is a bigger threat to the constitutional order than um, the left is. Why don't you just sort of give us a diagnosis of where you see the country right now and what is it about the state of the country right now that prompted you to write a book about defending liberalism?
1: Well, actually uh, the biggest illustration of that clear and present danger from the right actually occurred largely after I had already conceived and, and written a lot of the book, which is, you know, the um, rejection of the results of the 2020 presidential election. You know, I think up until that point, you would have said that Trump has violated a lot of norms. He's coarsened the, you know, the nature of discourse. He's increased polarization, but he hasn't done anything to fundamentally attack the institutions of a liberal democracy. But, you know, the failure to enact a peaceful transition of power is one of the biggest violations of democratic norms that you can imagine. And, you know, as we're now learning from the January 6th uh, uh, committee in the in the House, this was not just a spontaneous event that somehow just got out of control and all these lunatics, you know, then saw that they could get into the Capitol. It was planned. You know, John Eastman laid out the basic argument for how Mike Pence would throw out the results uh, from the states and that. Declare, uh, you know, and then the Republicans could declare Trump the winner. And, you know, if this happened in a developing country, we would be all over them saying, you know, this really shows that democracies, institutions are really not well uh, grounded in this society and, uh, you know, and so forth. And uh, I think that, you know, in a way, the worst thing was what happened after January 6th when instead of isolating the people that were responsible for it and denouncing it, the vast bulk of Republicans then tried to normalize it. And not just normalize it, but then uh, at a state level, uh, rewrite the laws for how you count uh, electoral votes, you know, in the upcoming election so that when this, if the same scenario of a close election were to play out in 2024, they'd be much better prepared to actually overthrow the, you know, the democratic outcome. So that's a that's just a, a, a danger that is staring us in the face. I, I hope it doesn't come to this, but you can imagine the scenarios uh, in 2024 where you have a really, really severe constitutional crisis that devolves into a lot of violence and, and, and so forth. So that's, you know, in my view, the, the, the real danger that's uh, active danger that's that's posed by the right at this point.
0: Is there... um. You know, you've done you have a pretty sweeping understanding of development in other countries um, um, is there i guess here's the question I, I have like the you know what happened to Eastman what happened to i mean Eastman's the most egregious example, but you know uh you know I don't think Lynn Powell was always Cindy Powell was always crazy. I don't, I I grew up in New York city. Rudy Giuliani was once a good mayor. Um, (laughs) uh, Newt Gingrich, there was always too much muchness to Newt. but, um, but you get the point is that there are a bunch of people who surprised us about how crazy they got. And, um, is, do you have a, do you have an international, either historical or contemporary example of, of that process? I mean, what, if you had said 10 years ago, oh yeah, John Usman is going to, uh, make this argument about stealing the election using the electoral act, electoral count act of 1877 or whatever it is. Um, people say, are you crazy? You know, he's this stalwart Federalist society guy, law professor, Dean Chapman he would never do anything of the sort. And yet there are an enormous number of people. Michael Anton's another, you know, there are an enormous number of people who seem to go like, like some switch flipped on them. And is there a, I mean, this can't be unheard of in the history of humanity, but like, do you have a theory of the case about?
1: Uh, I don't have a, no, I don't think there's a, I don't have a theory, but there are certainly precedents for this. I mean, if you read the history of the 1920s and thirties in Europe, you know where Hitler's ideas uh, seemed like they were completely uh, outside the bounds of you know certainly there was no overton window that you know contained them, uh, and then you have um, you know intellectuals who in their earlier day you know, like Julian Benda you know the treason of the intellectuals uh, they started out as kind of normal people but then as they saw the way that the power dynamics were shifting they shifted as well and they, you know, they got on board with uh, fascism. And that really is what's uh, what's pretty scary. You see this going on in Russia right now. You know, you, um, uh, if you've been following the media commentary, uh, now that the Ukraine war has gone bad for the Russians, they are saying things that they never said, uh, you know, just six months ago, you know, like Ukrainian, you know, The word Ukrainian has to be eliminated from the vocabulary that, you know, we need to eliminate the entire elite and not just, we thought that it was just a few individuals that were fascist, but now we see that most of the country is fascist. And so we're going to have to take much sterner measures to eliminate that. You know, uh, this, um, I think, really does indicate that leadership is pretty important. You know, the one thing that I'm trying to find good examples of is a populist leader that, you know, when faced with a real uh, electoral defeat, simply refused to accept it and just made up a complete, you know, I mean, Hitler did that in a certain way. So he was elected and then he said, okay, this is the last election we're holding. Right. So that, that was much more extreme. But, you know, you look at Marine Le Pen just recently, she loses the election and she concedes defeat, you know, Silvio Berlusconi, um, I think that even Viktor Orban, if he had actually been defeated in the last, you know, Hungarian election, probably would have, you know, he would have stepped down. I think um, uh, it's really extraordinary. And what I see very few precedents for is someone like Trump who just out of thin air makes up the story that there was massive fraud in order to stay in power. You know, that I find, and I don't see a single precedent for that in American history, where a figure of that importance, you know, was willing to just lie uh, on that scale over an issue that important—that's—that's that's what I think is really quite unprecedented.
0: Yeah, although I mean, I bet you if we scoured the record about Huey Long, he had potential in that regard a little bit. Um, but so, so he never, raises... but, but
1: he was always at the the margins of American politics, right? And he. He actually never got elected president. I mean, the idea that right. you could have a big national leader uh, that does this sort of stuff is really quite breathtaking.
0: Oh no, yeah, I, I'm not defending Trump in the slightest about this. And like, one of my great peeves is how unbelievably obvious it is that they were planning this well in advance of the election. They were laying down the predicates and uh, to say that if the election doesn't go their way. It's, they were going to like, you know, they, they had this plan about how they would be ahead on the votes on election day because the democratic votes wouldn't be counted yet. And they would just declare a victory when they're temporarily ahead and, and move on. And like, so just the idea that there were, there, there are some horrible people who knew what they were doing, but I also think that there were some people who have been made horrible who just, you know, sort of like Colonel Nicholson and Bridge on a River Kwai, right? They just, they just got ensorcelled, and and the tragedy is how few people said, "My God, what have I done?" And blown up the bridge, you know. Spoiler alert for people who haven't seen the movie. Um, so, so again, I'm 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 definitely with you on the the substance of this and the corrupting power of of. Um, the the corruption of a lot of institutions is, is very worrisome to me at the same time, you know, uh, you know, Ronald Reagan used to say, you know, uh, the fight for liberty is never more than one generation away because we're not born with, um, freedom in our blood. You have to fight for it. Uh, Hannah Arendt used to say that, uh, Western generation, Western civilization is invaded by barbarians every generation. We call them children. Um, and you can go back and you can look at the 1930s where Anne Morrow Lindbergh and various progressives or in the twenties where other progressives were looking sympathetically at Italian fascism or Russian communism. Um, you certainly had all sorts of, of useful idiots in the fifties, sixties, and seventies about various. So, I mean, isn't, isn't the truth that? Yes there's a threat to democracy and liberalism in America today, but there is always a threat to democracy and liberalism because we're kind of wired not to want to be liberals.
1: Yeah. Well, um, I think for me, the most disturbing um, observation about the last 30 years is that, you know, in many respects, liberalism is premised on a certain view of underlying human rationality. You know, that people take in information and, uh, they can believe things that contradict uh, reality for a certain period of time, but eventually they come to see that that's, um, that's wrong and they adjust their views. And uh, I think that, you know, actually just to refer back to Jonathan Hay, one of the useful things he's done is pointed out this whole uh, phenomenon of what he calls motivated reasoning, you know, that, People actually don't start from factual information and come to conclusions. They start with the conclusions, and then they look for factual information that supports those conclusions. And that—that's you know by far the dominant cognitive mode that most people uh, are in. And I think that you know that's really what happened with all these Republicans is that they really wanted Trump to win, or they wanted their party to win, and you know uh, they were being provided uh, a rationale and you know here i think technology also is is to blame for a lot of this because you know the internet has completely leveled the playing field with regard to you know bad information all the gatekeepers that kept this stuff out have now been bypassed uh, and so if you want to believe something it's really really easy you know if you want to believe that vaccines are actually poisonous uh, and are killing people you can find thousands of websites that will tell you exactly that. And so the combination of that, you know, that uh, technological uh, empowering of bad information with this strong motivation, you know, to, to support views that you hold very uh, deeply have meant that, you know, human rationality is not working the way that, you know, I think a lot of in, in liberal thought, you know, it, that's not the way it's supposed to work. Uh, now, that's not new. Uh, people have been doing this for a long time, but, you know, I think there was a belief that with higher levels of education, you, you develop crit- critical thinking. You know, I'm, I still believe a version of that, but I think that the impact of, you know, education is not what I thought it was. I, I, I do think that there's something much more you know, deeply troubling going on here.
0: So I'm, I'm, I struggle with how invested I need to be in the post liberal nationalism arguments. Um, I absolutely disagree with them on the, the major points. I'm a full throated defender of, of liberalism, rightly understood and all that. Um, but at the same time, I sometimes worry that giving them more attention than they deserve is the biggest gift that you can give to that sort of argument. Um, I'm just kind of curious, I know you talk about it a little bit of book. Um, how do you, um, come down on, on those arguments from Danine and Hazoni who have different schools on this, but it's the same sort of, you know, it's a very strange to me version of, um, Ad Adlo- law, Adlo- John Locke. And then 500 years later, everything goes to crap. And I'm just not at all <laughs> persuaded by that. <laughs> uh,
1: well, so, yeah, I've got a chapter on, on why liberalism actually needs the nation. Uh, and, you know, that's, uh, again, the result of uh, a number of pragmatic considerations that, um, you know, enforcement power, you know, the, the nation is a source of power. Uh, You know, a nation creates a government, a state that has police powers, it can defend the community, uh, and that coercive power is a scarce commodity. Uh, And so you cannot have a liberal state that enforces liberal rights universally. In fact, we live in a pretty chaotic world if every nation felt it was up to them to, you know, protect the human rights of every other individual on earth. But in liberal theory, there's nothing wrong with that, you know, in, in certain respects, because we do believe that, human rights are universal. But in fact, you know, since uh, enforcement power is a scarce resource, it really can only be applied to the territory of your society. And then there's simply an observation about, you know, human emotional attachments that we uh, feel the most strongly attached to things that are close to us. Uh, And, you know, if people are suffering 3,000 miles away, we may feel sympathy, but it's not as if it's happening to our neighbors and our relatives uh, and so forth. And that combination of the emotional structure of, you know, the way we treat um, uh, outsiders and the practical constraints uh, of living in power structures that, that are delimited territorially means that we still have to take nations um, uh, seriously. And the problem for a liberal is how do you define that national community uh, such that there is a boundary between people that are inside it and outside it and i think that the problem with traditional nationalism is that it became too exclusionary right uh, so this is the problem with someone like yoram hazoni who thinks that there are these pre-existing cultural units called nations and that they're not problematic at all well in fact they are because most nations historically have been defined you know in very narrow and rather exclusionary terms based on ethnicity, on race, on religion, on things that, you know, were not universally accessible to all the people uh, living within their territory. And that's why they were not compatible with liberal principles. And so the task, I think, for a liberal state is to define itself in a uh, non-exclusionary way. Uh, And that means defining the national identity around liberal principles themselves that, uh, you know, we are the people that believe in freedom. And I think that, again, you see an example of that in Ukraine right now, right? there's Because there's been this discussion, are all of these Ukrainian soldiers that are fighting so tenaciously, are they fighting for some liberal democratic idea or are they fighting just because it's Ukraine and, and you know, they, uh, they believe in, in, you know, their need for national sovereignty, whether it's democratic or authoritarian or whatever. And I think that that's, it's really not possible to distinguish between the two, because you can't fight for liberalism as an abstract principle everywhere in the world. You have to fight for it embodied in a particular nation. And I think that, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in Ukraine, I know a lot of Ukrainians, and I think that many of them think precisely in those terms, that we live in a society that is different from Russia because we are free in a way that Russians are not free, and that's worth fighting for. But we're not necessarily going to fight on behalf of the Kazakhs or you know other people you know in in other places because it's basically not our business and it's not our country. Uh, so I think you know there is a form of liberal nationalism that's important to cultivate, but it has to be liberal, and I think that's what a lot of uh, national conservatives don't get. They they You know, edge over into much more exclusionary forms of national identity that that then become very problematic.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I I think the problems with the so much of the formulas are messed up. You know, Yoram will argue that the second nation states start attacking other nation states, they're no longer it's no longer nationalism. It's it's uh, imperialism, right? And like that is. It's just not, I mean, like, like it, it, is, it is, there's sort of a no true Scotsman problem with a lot of those arguments is that every time a nation state does something bad, we don't call that nationalism. We call it something else. And it's just not the way history actually works on this stuff. All right. So, um, last question, cause I know you got to go and I'm really appreciate you taking the time. Um, um, are you long-term bullish or bearish on the, (laughs) and I don't mean to ask in, in neoliberal terms, I apologize, (laughs) but, um, on the future of the United States, I mean, I I agree with you entirely in the short and medium term, we got some huge problems, but like one of the things that's great about liberalism is that it has the capacity for self-correction and self-renewal that most other systems don't, um, do you think that will eventually kick in, um, or should i just buy gold are we doomed
1: well you know in terms of liberalism itself as a doctrine i'm pretty bullish just because i have the luxury as an intellectual of taking this extremely long-term view over the last you know several centuries and it's been durable in the face of you know pretty severe challenges so i don't expect that to go away whether liberalism in the united states survives is a more complicated question, because I really do think that the threats, uh, you know, to the American idea that have arisen in recent years are pretty, you know, are pretty serious, and I don't see an immediate uh, uh, path out of them. Um, I do, however, think that, you know, one of the paths may be via the international scene, because... You know, people judge uh, different forms of government based on whether they seem to be successful in other societies. And for the last decade, you know, Russia and China and these other decisive authoritarian countries look like they were powering ahead economically, even dealing with COVID. You know, they seem to have big advantages, but now they're screwing up. You know, uh, you couldn't get an invasion uh, as as incompetent, but as ill-conceived as the Russian one. Uh, in, a, in a country with more checks and balances. And similarly, uh, you know, this crazy zero COVID policy that China is following right now, you couldn't get that in a more democratic society where people would question, you know, whether the costs are really worth, you know, the objective. And this really seems to be the result of one kind of crazy leader. So I do think that, you know, the perceptions of which type of society is desirable can change based on these kinds of experiences and you know that's the one thing i would point to is making me more confident that we're gonna we americans are going to get out of our current funk than um you know than
0: otherwise but let's hope let's hope um with that uh uh francis fugiama the book is liberalism and its discontents um i highly recommend it for people interested in this stuff. and uh thank you so much for coming on i really appreciate it
1: well thanks for having me jonah
0: so uh frank fukuyama has left the studio in point of fact he left two days ago i'm recording this close on thursday uh show we recorded on tuesday but um when i was done with my conversation with professor fukuyama i was so ready um to crawl into a fetal position that um I just decided to skip the clothes and we would record it later thinking we would release this Tuesday. But, um, anyway, it is now Thursday. I want to thank professor Fugiyama for coming on this batch. I am feeling better. I am not feeling myself yet. Um, I don't know that anybody needs any great details about my, my health stuff, but, um, I, it's not COVID. It's not the plague. Um, uh and um you know um it might be the zombie virus but it's if it is it's not the fast zombie virus which kind of bums me out um but i will have a g file um and i will be on the dispatch pod and um things are going to try and get back to normal and thank you for your forbearance thanks again to professor fukuyama thank you for listening and i will see you next time
1: no you won't it's a podcast.